a mentor of mine, uh, early in that decision of, do I go and quit my day job? Do I go and quit my entire career? Lean into all this stuff. Cause I thought we were just buying, I thought we were just investing in stuff. I thought we were making great, great W2 income, sticking with our jobs. I'm not one of those people who dogs on the W2 world. I know that's very popular within the real estate investing community. N nothing wrong with that. I had an overall great experience in my W2 career. It was freaking hard sometimes, but we could have kept doing that. And ultimately a mentor was like, what kind of state do you live in? Are you going to move again? Are you going to move to a market where you're going to become a sponsor? Are you going to move to a market in Texas? Are you going to move to Georgia? Are you going to move to North Carolina? Because those are deal states. He's like, you live in a money state. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start. And most of the education out there is just complete trash. And you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right, Spencer Hillegoss, the CEO of Madison Investing, is on the podcast today. So Madison Investing is a real estate investment club with a singular mission to help busy, successful professionals invest passively and to secure their most valuable asset of all time. So welcome, Spencer. Happy to have you on. Drew, honored to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited about it. Yeah, we just right before we hit record, started having a, <laughs> a fun conversation. But, I, um, you know, we're like, yeah, we definitely need to get the mics uh turned on and, and get this going. But yeah, the um, yeah, I think in 2019, you uh, you had you retired from working in, in tech. And now um, you, you you have a full time investing club. So why don't you if you want to tell me maybe a little bit more how you got going in real estate, I think that would be probably the best place to jump off. Yeah, I mean, happy to and, and I think you hit the key kind of turning point, right, which was five months before COVID. Uh, I retired, quote unquote, from my 13 year tech career. Um, Real quick, I have to mention this because it's so top of mind as well, Drew. Uh, not that long ago, about you know a few weeks ago, the whole family and I. So Jennifer, who's my you know my wife and co-founder, COO of our club, and our two young boys, uh, we just got back from spending and living in uh, Portugal for six weeks, and we'd never done anything like that. You know, it's a kind of mobility uh, I never really could have envisioned even possible when I was working full time, but. We're looking to do a lot more of that throughout the, you know, the coming years. And I bring that up because it, I look at it like, wow, all this investing stuff that you and I just nerded out on before we hit record today, all this passive investing, active investing, you know, financial freedom, passive income stuff that we talk about, talk shop about all day. And, you know, we we're talking about posting on LinkedIn, posting on social media. This is really what it's all about. Um, and so I wanted to bring that up that done right. It's not really about, frankly, it's not about the money. Um, it, it, it's about what the money can do. And that was a great event and we're looking to do more of that. So diatribe complete. Um, yeah, so, so I st actually grew up in a real estate household. Um, you know, I don't, I don't bring it up very often, but my dad was a real estate broker for 30 years, uh, in the Bay area, California. So I was working open houses for him. I mean, I was cleaning out fridges at rentals, uh, and I was doing that, uh, when I was 
pretty young, you know, it's technically I started at the age of six in real estate. I don't think I learned a whole lot at that point. You know, there's a couple of photos of me sitting on plots of land he was selling around that area. But uh, really, that kind of scared me into tech companies. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, um, you get a little better work life balance, maybe in tech than as a, as a realtor. So. It's it's also as silly as it sounds too, Drew. It's just like not the cool thing to say in Silicon Valley to your friends, right? Yeah. You know, like you're like, oh, I, you know, it's working for my dad's company this weekend, as opposed to, ooh, I'm going to go work for this, you know, high tech, fast growth rocket ship company, which sounds way cooler. Not exactly the wisest decision making career wise at the time, of course, but uh, that was a 13 year journey for me going through tech. You know, as a kid who played in punk rock and metal bands growing up, I wasn't very business oriented to say the least. Um, I would say that that's a surprising thing to get interested in management, leadership, found myself going through uh, financial tech companies like Intuit, you know, they make QuickBooks, TurboTax, etc. And then I worked through four other competitors in that same space. It's solving problems for small businesses, you know, looking for bigger challenges. And so coming out the other side of that, uh, in 2016 or so, this is a few years before I pulled the ripcord to leave my W2 job behind. Um, we were making, Jennifer and I had our own careers, you know, we were making strong W2 income, um, her and her, her career, her, uh, me and mine, which you often have to do in these expensive markets. I mean, we were talking about, you know, other, other nice pricing markets, like, you know, like Chicago, you were talking about that earlier. I live in the Bay area, California. Um, and so we were living that lifestyle, climbing those corporate ladders. I was dumping money into my 401ks, celebrating that for years. Um, eventually there was around the time I had my first son working at the heart, most hardcore of the tech companies I work for so far in terms of, you know, the hustle culture as it's now called. And I didn't see my son for like at least two weeks. I felt like, while well, he was very young. I think it was infant toddler stage somewhere in there. Um, and I was going in the office early. It was dark outside coming home late. It was dark outside and kind of just going like, what, what's really, what are we doing here? Right. And, and I think at that point it was like, something's, something's got to give. Um, and so I started just in, that was my initial spark. You know, I was chasing the Silicon Valley lottery as it were, um, which is hoping I get some big tech exit, like, you know, Google meta, so something to absolve all my sins along the way, as it were financially. And, uh, and just realizing, you know, like some, something's got to change. So I, I eventually had a mentor that nudged me into a, uh, fintech uh, lending company for fix and flips. And this is, this is a brief aside, but relevant because I saw other folks that were working on the weekends doing flips of their own. I was managing some of these folks. I was brought in to build a team of fix and flip loan originators. I didn't know what the hell that meant. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I had to learn that. Right. Um, and they were doing flips as well. They were lending, but also doing some on their own, on their own, you know, very cool okay. company culture, you know, so shout out to those guys, you know, they're still around and they're crushing it now. They're called Kiavi. Um, so eventually I'm like seeing them come up with their bruises and their scrapes after, you know, fixing homes on the weekend. And I'm like, man, I can't do that. Like, I can't, I can't swing a hammer. Like I can't, uh, it's not handy. Je Jennifer's way more handy than I am. Um, <laughs> but I knew spreadsheets. I knew business partnerships. I knew people in a business context and hiring, structuring contracts, all that stuff. And, and, and I appreciated the economics that I was seeing. You know, like uh, some of these fix and flip lenders, some of these deals I'd see, I'm like, wow, these guys are making incredible businesses, um, but I can't flip. So tw 24 books read in a 20, in a, no, 24 books read in an 18 month period, uh, listened to 400 podcasts plus in that period of time on nights and weekends. And I'm an early bird at that time. I was waking up at four 
four to six to do the job before the job. And I got pretty obsessed about all this stuff, as you can imagine. Um, I know you probably, you kind yeah. of told me you went through a similar era, probably in your twenties. Um, yeah, yeah. Building business. And, uh, that's where I started to like, we bought a local rental, paid way too much for it. We still have it now. Um, we, you know, $430,000 duplex, uh, for 200 bucks a month in cash flow is not a win. Um, but that's when we realized there's the, there's a way to stretch our dollars and invest differently to get cash flow. Um, and so that was the beginning of the journey, bought more rentals, eventually realized they're, they come with some overhead. Uh, they're not fully passive. Uh, but we didn't stop there. I started investing as LPs as passive investors in multifamily. Um, and I know it's near and dear to your heart. So that, that was, that's what started the journey. And then it morphed into a business from there. Nice. Yeah. I know. I often joke to people where you, uh, you know, the, the real estate, it's not passive at all, unless you're like truly that LP and you've essentially, uh, outsourced the work to your, to your partner, you know, where, right. Your, right. your duplex. I mean, if something, even if you hired a property management company for that, um, right. They still are coming to you with all sorts of questions. And usually the way they some of these third party groups manage stuff, it's like they, they create a lot more work almost where you would feel like you do the same work. It's just like the same amount. It's just different work. Like, some sort of thing with the tenant, then they're running it by you or this bill. Can I pay it? What should I do? Where, um, it's still, it's always, there's always a lot of work to do. So that's, um, you had, you bought one, uh, duplex and then you started investing on the LP side or you, you bought a few and then realized, okay, this is, um, this is, this is still not passive even buying, uh, cause it sounds like one in the Bay area, but then where the next one's just somewhere else or. Yeah. So we, we didn't stop there. Um, you know, in hindsight, I say it this way package it like it was three phases that are nice clean cut in a framework it did not seem that way you know as an entrepreneurship and investing it's clear as mud <laughs> right right yeah it's up and down but now in retrospect it's like yeah i was yeah i did one uh in the local then i started doing turnkey and then i'm and doing an lp you know like it's like it had it chapters right. but at the time you're you buy your first turnkey deal and you're like this looks great and then all of a sudden it's not when you know um right it's in another state or, or the roof needs to be replaced and it's Exactly right. And so, so we, we had that first phase, right? And we, we bought that local rental, took us all summer to buy it, realized, wow, that was a quick 100K out the door for the down payment on a $430,000 duplex. Um, yeah. Then we actually started looking for long distance. And we did buy turnkey, we built up to five different single family rentals uh, that we bought turnkey wasn't through like some big established turnkey provider. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it was actually through a brand new one. But really, I had vetted, I vetted the the person thoroughly. I knew them um, through meetups and I, and I, I ran tons of analysis on each of these properties that we bought. So we got up to five and, and it was in Kansas city, Missouri, 60 K purchase price average, which was mind blowing, uh, an average of 250 bucks a month, cash flow, way better economics on cash flow. But then you learn, well, they, these are C class, dare I say, maybe D plus, uh, neighborhood. You know, no matter yeah. how much I remotely could de-risk it. And uh, that's when you get those notices of like, well, yeah, it looks like your, your stable tenant that came leased with the turnkey, uh, you know, kind of trashed the place. And now you're going to pay turnover costs and now you're going to pay to market to get the new person in there. Um, by the way, the county way out, you know, hundreds of miles away sent you a notice because there's a random couch sitting on the lawn. You better remove it or we're going to fine you. You know, like, like all, yeah. <laughs> all those joys yeah. that you alluded to and I know you've been through. Yeah, I've gotten um, plenty of those. So, yeah. <laughs> but we, we did sell those, we sold those eventually at, at a profit. Um, and we just realized the hard way, I think from that, you know, could have been worse, knock on wood. Um, but 
we kind of learned via to it paying tuition and dues uh, that those are semi-passive at best even it's like you said earlier we, with a property manager we've worked with two different property managers on residential and uh it's got just got to be good enough <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just right be good enough yeah. man you know i mean that's that's essentially how they want it. they run their businesses too because they also they need to make money so if they can't you know the a players usually they're they're all you know working for the the a lot of the owner operators that can pay a little bit more and then um no doubt you know or even if it is an a player it's like what's what team are they on are they they're really they're, they don't work for for you they work for the property management company so right and, and and you don't learn this stuff until you get deeper into it for years right and, and, and so, yeah gosh you're spot on about that you know in terms of a players going to work for the sponsors <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, they just work it yeah but yeah i mean yeah a players want to work their way up you know and then that that's why i was you know have realized that and where they want to maybe be an owner themselves and then there's you know they want to get on that train but anyways yeah. yeah continue no and i was just going to mention you know phase three of that whole journey was we started investing passively as an lp and it was more it was for, for some reason more comfortable feeling to me to read through a comically long legal document like a subscription agreement or a ppm document than sitting there and going man is that neighborhood like we still do the diligence we still look at the neighborhood we still look at the submarket. we look at the deal the team you know we'll talk about vetting in a moment of course but i, I think uh looking at bigger properties just felt more natural because of it felt a little bit more the right kind of corporate um, that I was familiar with, like predictable, the financials and economics behind them made sense to me. Um, and just realizing, oh, some of these markets, you still can't invest in them. I could invest in a deal in like Huntsville, Alabama as an LP, uh, you know, in, in Dallas, Texas, you know, and, and have these things go uh, truly passive, uh, you know, done, done right. But you still have to do due diligence on the front end. So it always it cracks me up when people are like, when first time LPs are like, wow, this isn't passive. I have to read this document. I have to sign this stuff. And I have to, I'm like, well, I know we all click through our Apple disclaimers on our iPhones, but like, this is something where you're putting like five to six digits of money. And so, yeah, I do think it's okay to put some diligence in on the front end. I strongly recommend that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And understanding the team and who's doing what and how long they've been around and what they did all before. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to, a lot to figure out, but then there's, yeah, there's a lot of positives. Um, and so what, what kind of deals were you doing then? What were your first deals as an LP like then? Yeah. I mean, we were talking earlier before you hit record drew about just your incredible journey. Um, you know, which spans, I, frankly, so many more years and, and, and units and experiences than, uh, a lot of the folks who are currently active out there in the business and to your credit. Um, and I'm not just trying to make you blush. Those are just the facts. And, and I think we got, I feel fortunate we started investing, um, before, you know, a couple of years before COVID, you know, we started doing all this stuff around 2016, 2017. So the first one I did, uh, was in Alabama and then we did some in Texas. Um, and these were like multifamily, you know, B class, some C class at first, and they were value add and they went well, you know, yeah, and, great markets uh, and perfect timing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Alabama, people don't know. I mean, Huntsville, there's a lot of growth there and all NASA and all this, all their stuff there. I mean, that's, that's a great market. Yeah, yeah I mean, but, but a lot, a lot of the Sun Belt. Like, I'm, I'm a fan of so many markets within the Sun Belt, but we focused intensely on Texas, specifically in Dallas. Um, I know you're sitting in Texas right now, so big fan of Texas from an investing perspective. Uh, Georgia and Atlanta. I mean, Raleigh, Raleigh Durham within North Carolina, uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Like, it just kept going um, for a lot of the Sun Belt all the way up to the southeast. 
but also some in like I used to live in Colorado for 10 years, very, very biased toward Colorado. I love it there. It's a special place in our hearts. And but also in terms of investing, uh, you know, fan of Colorado, fan of uh, some of those mountain mountain regions. Uh, you know, I know that it's these are cyclical markets, but at the same time, they're also beautiful and very easy to attract people who are flooding in. So it's like, I think, uh, still attractive to me now in under the right conditions on the right field with the right team. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, really, since 2012, like the so yeah, when I got started, you were alluding like I got started in 2005. And when I was first coming up, we'd go on these webinars that the brokerages would put on. And it was always for multifamily, like, what markets number one, and it was always just New York and San Francisco, like jockeying back and forth, and then LA be number three mm. and Seattle, it was always the gateway primary markets were the best from let's say the 90s until you know, 2010. And then about in 2010, the sun all those cities you mentioned in the sun belt and the mountain states um plus you know florida and arizona as well in addition to all the ones you mentioned those have been the top you know ones for multifamily rent growth and price appreciation um since since then so it really was a like a changing of the guard and really it has to do with the with the fundamentals like uh jay parsons had a really great linkedin post and tweet he puts it in both places um love his where yeah, where he said the because um, when they were like, why do like why is the pricing more aggressive on a cap rate, let's say in the Sun Belt than like in New York now? And it's like, well, the the investors only for so long were uh, were not able to keep up with the fundamentals, basically, or like what he said, where eventually like everyone figured out, actually, this has been going on for a while. And it wasn't just right because of the pandemic or something. This was been had been going on a long time and it just kind of put additional fuel to the fire, you know, with people being able to be a little more mobile, but that was already happening. People were already right. deciding, you know, I'd rather be in Austin than in, than in New York or LA that was already, already happening. And there's still people moving to those big cities. So it's not like there's nobody there and they're dying or anything, but this, yeah. So you were picking all the right markets though. Like that's so kudos to you. Um, whatever research you were doing, those are all the, all the good ones. So, well, I mean, I, I appreciate it. I mean, at the same time, I'm sitting there going, as a guy who I sit in, a, I feel like I sit in a very fortunate seat where it all comes down to picking the right who, who then picks the market. And do I, do I look at markets that way? Of course, you know, I nerd out on markets so hard, but, but at the same time, the journey that I've carved out with Jennifer, who's, you know, not many people choose to work with their spouse, but that's like a core of how we've been able to do what we do. And it's not for everybody, but it's very much for us, um, is like, we look at this, like, well, a mentor of mine, uh, early in that decision of, do I go and quit my day job? Do I go and quit my entire career, lean into all this stuff? Cause I thought we were just buying, I thought we were just investing in stuff. I thought we were making great, great W2 income, sticking with our jobs. I'm not one of those people who dogs on the W2 world. I know that's very popular within the real estate investing community. N nothing wrong with that. I had an overall great experience in my W2 career. It was freaking hard sometimes, but we could have kept doing that. And ultimately a mentor was like, what kind of state do you live in? Are you going to move again? Are you going to move to a market where you're going to become a sponsor? Are you going to move to a market in Texas? Are you going to move to Georgia? Are you going to move to North Carolina? Because those are deal states. He's like, you live in a money state. And I was like, this is a is good that? analysis. Wow. And I, and, and I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I was like, tell me more. What do you mean? Um, and, and, you know, it's a gross oversimplification, you know, and it's very soundbiteable, but it's, there is a nugget of truth there, right? Um, it, which is like, it's more a comment on understand one's strengths 
the, your, your posture and, and prompted me to reflect on uh, what did we want to be very good at um, and, 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 and uh, building our own portfolio, our own investing really was something that I leaned into uh, at first, but then it became, you know, colleagues, people in my network were saying, they're not going to go fly out to go look at these assets. They're not going to go fly out and get on a plane to walk you know, six to eight hours across different apartment buildings throughout a market. They're not going to go look at a self-storage facility because we do, we, we like self-storage a lot too is another asset class. Um, they're not going to do that stuff and, and they don't want to, they're not, they don't think it's fun. <laughs> they think it's weird, but they like yeah. the economics behind it and they like the investment thesis behind it, you know? So it's, anyways, I appreciate you in, indulging the diatribe. It's, it's, uh, it, it's that type of focus. I think that ultimately, uh, get, gets me fired up and, and I lean on the partners who go and, and put the hustle in. I mean, you, you live and breathe this and you know more about this than the majority of active sponsors out there who are out there doing this right now, Drew, but talk about a hard funnel to manage <laughs> the number of deals you have to look at. Yeah, that's true. And I, that analysis from your mentor, that's really spot on. I had almost, I had a moment where I second guessed my move to Austin for a second. Um, so I moved in April this year. Uh, I'd been in Chicago for 11 years. Congratulations. Prior and, yeah, thanks. And in May, I went to my friend's wedding and he lives in Newport Beach and I'm uh, on our hotel room was facing PCH and all the Lambos and stuff are going by all the time. And uh, and I'm sitting here thinking, maybe maybe I should have moved here. And then I this would have been like it would be seem like it would be you're away from the deals, but you seem like raising money should be pretty easy with all these yachts outside and the Ferraris going by. Um, so I did, I, that's interesting. The guy kind of gave you that advice where he's like, just to your, you're in an area where wealth is very concentrated in the Bay area and you have something these people want, but it's not, it's not actually like someone needs to go to Texas, to Arizona, to Florida, like to, to do that. And then you're the, the person who's able to put that together. So that's a very astute analysis. And I've, I've kind of came to that realization on my own, um, and I'm kind of best of both worlds in Austin. There's still people with with money here, um, with all the, the tech and quite a bit of that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about Madison investing. Then I mean, so you um, you still are, so people can invest with you in the in the, the deals that you like. How how does that work? Yeah. So uh, what we do is, you know, in business, I think it's so important to be focused on long view of any type. I mean, certainly when it comes to investing, right and we go out and we invest in sponsors first ourselves, just, you know, as part of our, our vetting process, we're like, oh, we love these asset classes. We love the, you know, capital preservation, the cash flow, you know, the equity growth um, and the tax benefits, of course. Um, all that said is like, we basically now have done that over 50 times where we've shared opportunities with teams that we already know and have vetted to our investing group. Um, and it's, incredibly transparent in the way that we try to do this. Uh, you know, there's so many models out there of people who say, oh, you know, they find a great deal. But the way we do it is literally saying, okay, this is a team. We, we already know them. We've invested our own money with them. And it wasn't just a fly by night thing. We're looking for more of the married in business, not dating. Right. And, uh, the hold periods on these types of investments, as you know, Drew, like they're years long. Right. And I mean, they're longer than college, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's, it's hard for, I think, uh, it, it would have been hard for me to conceptualize this when I first started, but I mean, really a five to seven year hold period, life changes, chapters turn, you know? And, and so when people are getting into this for the first time and I'm trying to educate them on our experiences as LPs 
on what it means to sign that BPM and wire over 50,000 or hundred thousand or 200,000 dollars into a deal to be like this, these are the following things that are important. And so that's really what we do. You know, we, we, we just invest in people and teams that we believe to be up for the task because they've got the experience and they've also got their a repeatable approach, you know, and, and in, in a market that has all those wonderful fundamentals that you just outlined earlier, like, you know, te Texas has so many markets like that. Georgia has so many markets like that. I can go on and on, but, um, yeah, so we'll share a handful of deals every year uh, to invest in the, in the first deal with the sponsor, you like to just invest your own money. Yes. It's a good idea. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you vet the sponsors? Like what do you, before you invest, you tried them out with your money. What are you doing to vet the sponsor? Yeah. You know, I'm a framework guy, you know, the frameworks are wonderful. I, I didn't really think about them in the business context until I went through that tech journey, of course, surrounded by people who were just brilliant, way higher IQ than I could ever get to <laughs> engineers, data scientists. And I'm like, they're like, how do you make great decisions quickly? Cause sometimes big decisions are made slowly and they should be, but you can't really do that when you're analyzing a deal. You can't do that when you're building a startup and making a bunch of day. So we built this like a five-part framework and this started as something I just built and Jennifer and I built to determine we're not, we're not about to go deploy 25 K 50 K hundred K into something that's not going to work with a team we can't trust. So it was five parts. I'll use my hands, but for folks on audio, I'll just say it out loud, uh, team. So we look at the team, we look at track record, we look at approach, we look at the communications and we look at their values. And there's a, a, a nerdy spreadsheet that kind of sub bullets out. What are the actual guidelines, like guidelines and criteria beneath each of those? But if I had to sum it up quickly, track record, that's really ideally going to be, have they gone full cycle? Has this team that's managing and buying this big property in this state, hundreds of miles away, have they done this before? You know, like have, it's not rocket science, but have they done it before and how did it go? Uh, I think there's a really important distinction though, right now, Drew, uh, you could probably attest to this is like. A track record doesn't just mean, does the team have exits? I think that that could be very misleading after a couple of really good years in the economy, especially around 2021, hell of a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hell of a year. Um, so you can see a sponsor with a great track record, but the question right below that is what is the approach? And I think about this from the lens of my former tech career. Like you, if a person does something, if a leader builds a new business unit in a company, if an entrepreneur builds a product or launches a product, they're going to have a, a way of, of doing things. They're going to have an approach, a process. If someone's actually done that themselves or built a team to do it, they'll have a repeatable process. And, you know, there's different ways that we can kind of tease that out with a sponsor, but we just want to make sure, okay, track record means they went and did this thing. They, so they bought some buildings, improved the buildings and sold the buildings at a profit or refied them out or, you know, brought their investors along with it or whatever, a developer. They had a vision, they built the thing, they built the building, sold the building at a profit, you know, so I pick your poison. Ultimately, we just want to make sure that like wherever the soup was made, <laughs> that it wasn't a fluke. The first time they made that figurative soup, they actually know the recipe that went into it and how they prepared it. Uh, and I won't yeah. go further down the food analogy. I need to eat lunch. Um, but yeah. you know, those things, those things matter. <laughs> what kind of approach are you, are you looking for then? Is there a specific thing you're looking for or? You know, I think, uh, without getting too nitty gritty, like here's an example on like value add, you know, we, we've done a lot of value add, uh, multifamily and, uh, I mean, storage, self-storage deals too. And when it comes to that stuff, like sourcing materials, especially when it was getting kind of hairy around like 2020 for, uh, for example, like 
being able to say like, will, will all forms of wood and metal, like appliances and lumber and let alone, uh, relationships for labor and talent, are those well-established? Is there redundancy? What redundancy is there? Um, because the pro forma spreadsheet that says, oh, cool, we're going to go enact these rent increases and it's going to be 3% or 5% or hopefully not higher than that. But, um, you know, like a couple of years ago, I mean, right now I hope it should be lower than that on a pro forma. But if, if they're putting that in there, that has to be supported by the business plan. The business plan needs to have the ingredients plugged into it. And so, uh, you know, that'd just be one example. It would be like, do they have those relationships established? What is the evidence that they've been able to, to perform under changing conditions, whether it's sourcing supplies or whether it's, um, you know, property management, uh, this is a whole can of worms, but I am not against third party property management. And I also think there's pros and cons for vertically integrated property management. Um, I, I think that, uh, some, some partners I've seen, you know, without going further, I'll just say they thrive with vertically integrated. They've launched their own property management. They, they, they crush it. On the other hand, I've seen ones that try to do that and they're like, oh, we were way better and more efficient and well-run when we have, we have a big portfolio. We should just go third party and you let them do the thing, you know, but knowing their strengths, I think is key to that. Um, and so being able just to understand, uh, with that team, do they know what they're good at as indicated by, by X or Y? Um, yeah, I really agree with the property management point where I have, uh, one of the early episodes I did of this podcast was with the Mary Jabala, who works for a property management company in Chicago, we've used. And I said something where I was uh, just about who uses it. And she like, inter like interrupted me and was like, really? No, there's a lot of people that they manage their own properties. They'd be way better off hiring us because we eventually either get the property after they sold it or they switch it to us. And like, no, it's not always that owner management's better. Right. Um, and actually what I've realized too now over the years, because sometimes we've managed our own deals and like in Chicago, we manage our own properties now for the most part. And then in other markets, other places, other times we haven't. And what seems to be the constant most important thing is actually who's driving the business plan. So if mm -hmm. I were to say like, what would be the most important thing to ask as an LP on that value add business plan you were talking about with renovating, like in terms of who's doing what, I'd want to know who's setting the rents and who's in charge of uh, dealing with the contractor. Cause like even right. on our deals, like I set the rent still like this is, that's very important where, right. um, you know, you, you can't just offload that. And then that's millions of dollars of money being determined by someone who, you know, may or may not be pushing as hard as I would. And so like, that's, so I totally agree with you. I think actually the most important seat is who's whoever's driving the business plan, whatever title that is, the owner, the asset manager, the property manager, that's, that's the important piece. Oh, that's a great example though. I, I appreciate that they. Yeah. One reply to that, I would just say would be, uh, I think oftentimes, uh, you know, you can kind of smell that when ego is, uh, is playing into some of those decisions almost. And, and, uh, and that, and that's where it gets weird. Um, is, is it's like, there is no shame in using either model. It's a business decision. Um, it's a business decision and it comes down to self-awareness, uh, and economics. Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree with that. Then what are some things you've learned then investing, uh, investing passively, some other, Let's say I have any key lessons or advice for people getting started. Yeah, I know we only have a couple of minutes, so I'll try to keep this, yeah. one, this one brief. It's too, yeah. it's a robust topic. Um, number one, it sounds so incredibly simple, but I come back to it before we wire money. Uh, ask oneself and I ask myself this, like, what's the goal for the money? 
It's like, what's the goal for the money? And I, I think uh, there's a comment on growth. Like if someone is wanting to go and grow, like if they are working full time and they have not set that goal of saying, I'm investing passively. This is like an example of a profile that is probably the most common um, for people who are looking to invest passively as an LP, specifically in multifamily in the year 2023. And in recent years, it's like, oh, I want passive income because I've seen a Facebook ad or, you know, I heard about it from a friend or, or, or rentals sound cool, but they sound like a lot of work, all of which are true. Uh, but sitting there and saying, well, why are you investing for this? Oh, person one, you make $300,000 a year at a tech company. You want to invest for cash flow? Cool. Why? Oh, well, I'm not sure. I just, I heard it's a really good way to diversify. Be like, okay, well, that statement doesn't make a lot of sense and I don't judge you for it. I used to say things like that too. Um, you are diversifying, but really what I think you're saying is you want to go and grow your, 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 your net worth. You want to grow your portfolio. So are you trying to pivot out of your job? Are you trying to leave, retire or spend more time with your kids that you're growing family, maybe in five, seven, 10 years in working through those questions, I think, um, is really important. Like what's the goal for the money, time bound goals, simple as it sounds. Um, I didn't have this figured out when I first started, but Jennifer and I did take a literal whole weekend in 2016 and said, how much monthly passive income do we want to have and by what year milestone? And that was hard. That literally had tears involved and reconciliation in the same weekend. And the sitter was hired so we could have some privacy to have these discussions and walls covered in sticky notes. It got real, man. And like, I'm not saying I'm not trying to scare people away with it, but I'm just saying like, it's easy to wire funds into a deal. <laughs> it is yeah. not, not easy to invest towards something that is specific and measurable. So my first advice for people getting into it would be like, like really sit there and think about it and, and, and do it in a asset class agnostic way. If you can, you know, I'm partial to multifamily. That's the biggest chunk of our portfolio, um, in alternative assets, I'm partial towards storage, but multifamily is the biggest, but you know, pause and ask yourself, are you going for cash flow, or are you going to be working with a high paid job for the next decade? And you're really, really stable employment. Why do you need cash flow? <laughs> you know, it's these questions that matter. We have this in our, in our passive investing guidebook on our website, where it's going through the same thing where you need to match up the investment with your actual goal. We didn't have a time bound piece on it, but are we, and then we, I always like to give extreme examples. Like if you're a cash flow guy, gal, like why? You, you don't invest in any development deals. There's no cash flow. They build it, right. they sell it, you know, but if you don't need, if yeah, if you're that example you gave, you're a young person in tech, uh, where you're trying to like build wealth and maybe, you know, escape the rat race at some point. Yeah. $200 a month of cash flow is not going to help with that. You're going to need to right. build this, build the snowball and like, uh, um, yeah, no, that that's, uh, yeah, that's a great, great tip. Well, well, nice. Well, yeah, let's leave it there, Spencer. I mean, I appreciate you coming on. How can um, how can people get in touch with you? They want to learn more or maybe invest with you. What should they do? Yeah, and thank you. This has been a blast, Drew, before we hit record and during. Um, so yeah, we have a website. It. Yeah, we have a website at madisoninvesting.com. Um, so folks can come in. We have some educational content every month, newsletter, but also they can set up an appointment with me just to be a sounding board if they want to. It's a no-pitch thing um, and see if they want to join our investing club. So yeah, come check it out. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Spencer. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Drew. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. 
Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.